You're listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland. Now, Gardaí are questioning a man in connection with the murder of Josh Dunn, the 16-year-old who was stabbed to death in Dublin on Tuesday night. The man was arrested in Dublin last night. We can speak now with our crime correspondent, Paul Reynolds. Paul, what details do we have of the arrest? Well, Angus, this is being seen as a significant development in this investigation. Detectives had identified the teenagers and adults who were at the scene of Josh Dunn's murder on Tuesday night in Dublin. Uh, The 16-year-old was stabbed to death after a group of teenagers intervened in a row between an adult and takeaway food couriers on East Wall Road over a stolen bicycle. The Gardaí had spoken to almost all of those who were at the scene of the murder, but they had been searching for this man. They'd visited a number of homes looking for him, and at around half eight last night, uh, they found him and they arrested him him. The man is 34. He's originally from Brazil, but was living and working here delivering food. He's been questioned this morning at Store Street Garda Station, and the Garda are not looking for anyone else at present in connection with this investigation. And what happens now? Well, the man is being held under Section 4 of the Criminal Justice Act, which means he can be detained for a uh, question for a total of 24 hours. His initial period of six hours is due to be extended by a superintendent for another six hours, and if the Garda wish to continue questioning him for a further 12 hours throughout the day a chief superintendent has to extend that detention period but it is likely that the man will be questioned throughout the day and either charged or released by tomorrow morning now Josh Dunn's family who issued a statement yesterday describing Josh as a caring and amazing boy a dreamer and a doer have been made aware of the arrest by the Gardaí they've also asked for privacy to be allowed to grieve his loss and a Garda family liaison officer is keeping them informed of all developments last night the Fianna Fáil TD Jim O'Callaghan who has called for changes to the law for some time to deal with knife crime also pointed out that if or when someone is charged in connection with the killing of Josh Dunn it will no longer be possible to publish Josh's name because of the current application of Section 252 of the Children's Act and he has called for the law to be urgently amended so that uh, child victims such as Josh Dunn are not, as he says, erased from people's memory. Now a number of families of child victims of crime have also supported this call so that these children uh, can be remembered. Now both the Minister for Justice and the Taoiseach have said that the law will be changed but it's not clear when this will happen to allow these children such as Josh Dunn to continue to be named public publicly once, once proceedings have commenced. Or to e-crime correspondent Paul Reynolds thank you for that update. So mandatory quarantine at home or in a hotel, more checkpoints near ports and airports, more checkpoints near the border with the north. Who will police the plan and how? Let's talk to Dermot O'Brien, Assistant General Secretary, Secretary General rather, of the Garda Representative Association. Dermot O'Brien, good morning. Good morning, Gavin. Um, How will this plan change what your members are doing to police the pandemic from what they're doing at the moment? Well, Gavin, our members are policing the pandemic and thankfully the vast majority of members of the Irish public have been very, very cooperative in relation to it. There have been occasions where we've had to implement fines and so forth. It's going to change drastically for us from the perspective of the border area. And what we are seeking is a clear plan for policing the border. It must be developed, resourced and communicated to Gardaí because too often the government 
have decided on policy first, which they've done here without giving due consideration to the practicalities of the implementation. But the le- this leaves our members exposed on the front line trying to deliver what we would class as an unrealistic expectation. And you look at the border area, how many crossings are at the border? I think there's 300 something plus border crossings. And you detract that back five kilometres into into the, into the south. All those roadways have to be policed in order to bring about what the government are seeking to do in relation to um, people coming into the country. And uh, do you expect, for example, to be able to turn people away if they've come five kilometres into the border? Well, the legislation is there um, in relation to that and Statutory Instrument 701 of 2020 would give a list of reasonable excuses for the five kilometre rule. And one of those wouldn't be that you could arrive into Belfast and travel down to, say, Waterford, because obviously that's far more than five kilometres. So the legislation covers that and Gardaí can ask people to return. Now, failure to comply is an offence which can be, uh, you can be arrested for. Um, but we don't want to be clogging up guard stations with people coming over the border, travelling in through Belfast or through Dublin and so forth. How will you make sure, for example, that someone who has entered the country is quarantining at home? Gavin, this this comes back to the unrealistic expectations again. There's legislation there that allows us um, to check on people at their front door. There is no legislation there to enter a private home to check on these people. And if there were, how is that going to be done? What proofs are required? Now, in relation to that, Kevin, if, if, if you look at the first port of call for any person coming into this country is a passport check. So your previous speaker was on there about travellers with negative tests coming in PCR tests within 72 hours, self-isolating on arrival, people from South Africa and Brazil having to isolate and stay at room quarantine hotels. The first person they're going to meet is a member of Vanguard Shikana. Now, what we will be seeking there, if we are going to be asked to go into these premises to check on people, is a vaccination rollout. It's required. How can you expect our members to deal with these people coming into the country, potentially bringing in COVID. And I'm not saying that is the case, but if they're being asked to quarantine, the potential is there. A vaccination, a rollout, a clear rollout for our members is required. And what's your understanding of, of what you'll be asked to do near the airport? I mean, are you going to be asked, for example, to stop someone and ask them, are they on their way out of the country and get them to turn back? Well, I, I keep referring to the legislation because there's reasonable excuses there. And if someone is living abroad, they have an entitlement to travel. So it has to be there has to be a reasonable excuse for you to have to travel abroad. Now, going to the Canary Islands or going on holidays isn't a reasonable excuse. However, if something happens to someone abroad, a relation of yours, and you have to get home, that is a reasonable excuse. Or if you're travelling for business. But otherwise, yes, Gardaí will be doing their job and turning people back. Do you expect to have a role? Do Gardaí expect to have a role, for example, in those who are going to be asked to isolate or quarantine at airport hotels? Well, this is difficulty, and I come back to unrealistic expectations and the unknown and what the government are doing. They're rolling out policies first. They're not giving due consideration to the practicalities and the implementation of them. I mean, if if Gardaí have to enter hotels and rooms, it comes back to the fact that if someone is in a room that's their private area that they're in. Where's our entitlement to go in? Our entitlement could be there to knock on the door and ask a question. But I, I keep coming back to the, the fact if someone is vaccin- if someone is quarantining in a hotel, there may be the p- potential there for COVID-19 to be there. And our members have been asked to expose themselves to that as they are on a daily basis. So I come back to the point about the practicalities of it. What's going to be implemented for our members before they can go and do this? 
But we are we are as much in the dark as you are at the moment. There's vagueness around the whole thing. Dermot O'Brien, thank you very much for speaking to us. That's Dermot O'Brien, Assistant Secretary General of the Garda Representative Association. President Biden has wasted no time in signing a sweeping range of executive actions on the climate crisis, promising a jobs bonus for Americans in a new green economy. These aren't pie-in-the-sky dreams. These are concrete, actionable solutions. To summarize this executive order, it's about jobs, good-paying union jobs. It's about workers building our economy back better than before. It's a whole-of-government approach put climate change at the center of our domestic, national security, and foreign policy. It's advancing conservation, revitalizing communities and cities and in the fa- on the farmlands, and securing environmental justice. Well, President Biden's executive order has been welcomed by many around the world, including climate justice campaigner, chair of the Elders Group, and former President of Ireland, Mary Robinson. Good morning, Mary Robinson. Good morning, Anya. President Biden's move, uh, welcome by you and the elders, but he's going to face a lot of opposition at home, and it is, in the end, only an executive order. It's not legislation. It's very important. Uh, First of all, the language was right. He called it a climate crisis. He called it an existential threat. He had already um, signed an order that that they would rejoin the Paris Agreement, and he had suspended the controversial uh, Keystone oil pipeline. But these orders are real. I mean, he has uh, put a stop to issuing leases for oil and gas exploration on federal land, and that existing leases will be reviewed. He has doubled offshore wind-produced energy by 2030, and he has said he will conserve at least 30% of federal lands and oceans by 2030. That's part of the campaign for nature, which I'm involved in. And as you heard from the uh, from the clip, um, he's linked it all with jobs. All of that will start um, taking place. And if it starts to really make a difference, because he's talking about, you know, uh, jobs in modernizing water systems, in transportation, in energy infrastructure, if that all begins, I think that will be more convincing to a Congress that is very divided, as we know. In fact, it's not just a 50-50 with the casting vote of uh, Vice President Kamala Harris, but there is at least one Democrat um, from a coal-producing state who probably won't be uh, easily persuaded. <clears throat> so it's, it's difficult. Indeed, and we've seen that here, haven't we? Look, look you know, the Bordnemona workers and, and, you know, the, the move away from extracting peat, uh, that as well as, you know, the long-term gain and the new jobs and a new green economy. There's also losses and pain along the way. Yes, and I I was very glad that he pledged to put environmental justice at the centre of all we do. And that um, reflects the fact that he's aware that it's black and brown and indigenous communities who suffer more, and that there has to be just transition for the workers in coal and oil and gas as um, the US moves to um, a zero emissions by 2050, which is also part of the commitment. And they're going to have a conference of world leaders on the 22nd of April, which is Earth Day. So, you know, insofar as he possibly could, I think Biden has fulfilled his pledge. And of course, John Kerry um, is his czar, if you like, on climate. And, uh, you know, he's got a great woman whom I know well, Gina McCarthy, as his domestic 
leader um, in the White House with a new cabinet position. And she's great fun. She was head of the Environmental Protection Agency in the past and um, had a centre for health and um, climate in Harvard University. And I met her several times in recent years. She, and she, actually, she was on my podcast, Mothers of Invention. And we had great fun together, um, joking. And she, she has a great sense of humour and a great sense of Irishness. So she's another ally. But John Kerry is using a new word that I hadn't heard him use before, the word humility. You know, he's got a very key position because he's, he's, he's in charge of the uh, foreign uh, climate policy, but he's also on the National Security Council. Um, that's a new move. And all of this is very positive. Yes, and indeed, increasing attention being paid to the whole issue of climate and, and security. This is an important year, isn't it, Mary Robinson, 2021? It's a year when the world is aiming to come up with a new global climate agreement to replace the Paris Accord. Uh, a lot of people disappointed with the delivery on the, you know, the big commitments in Paris. What needs to happen this year? It is an absolutely vital year because it's the year when um, all governments have to make their commitments and as to where they're going to be in 2030, and hopefully everybody's going to make the commitment to be zero greenhouse gas emissions by uh, 2050. And it's so important at this COP26 in Glasgow that we hear not just the commitments, but also the financing, the 100 billion a year that was promised to um, uh, um, developing countries to trigger lots of private investment as well. The um, the need to address much more money for adaptation um, because countries are, are suffering so much from climate now, um, particularly developing countries. And uh, I think what, is, what has been needed is a drive from the United States to help other countries and to push China and other large emitters like India um, to be part of the way forward. That was what um, helped before Paris. And of course, um, vulnerable countries, the uh, poorest countries like the Marshall Islands, also have a wonderful moral voice in these uh, conferences. Um, they uh, link with civil society. They got the 1.5 degrees in the Paris Agreement, which the scientists have now said is the benchmark for the whole world. We have to stay at or below 1.5 degrees Celsius of warming. We're already above one degree. Well, yeah, times were at 1.2, um, 1.1, 1.2. So we're very close to, to that. It's, it's urgent. And this is also the year of biodiversity. That's why I mentioned preserving 30% of the land and 30% of the oceans. That's going to be a very important conference in China in May and then the COP in December. And there's a big energy meeting during the UN General Assembly. And now we know that um, there's going to be a, a meeting of world leaders on Earth Day and Earth Day is a very big day for civil society all around the world. Um, so, you know, good news for a change in these bleak times. But I, I think, you know, it, it is, it's clear he's making it an all-of-government approach. Everything he said, I was cheering yesterday because he really does know that we're in a crisis and that we have to do everything we can. And I do agree with him. It is about jobs. One lesson that we've learned uh, throughout this pandemic, throughout this really tough past year, is that we're only as strong, we're only as well or as healthy as the weakest or sickest of us. That's a lesson that applies to global warming. Do you think the penny has dropped at all politically there? 
I think you're right that we can learn very important lessons from COVID. We can learn that collective human behaviour matters because that's what's uh, keeping us from the virus in the absence of the vaccine up to now or the vaccine just coming on board. Um, we have to think about that in the future, about consumption, about waste, about plastics, about the fact that we waste a third of the world's food. You know, we, we have to uh, have a circular economy and move in a, in, a, in a different direction. Secondly, government matters. Thirdly, science matters. And fourthly, and this is important, compassion matters. You know, we're all set back and we're seeing a lot of human kindness and neighborliness in every country. And um, there wasn't the empathy before for those who were suffering more. I think we're a bit more open to the kind of solidarity that will be needed so that developing countries get the investment so that they can move to clean energy because they got the investment and the technology and the training. Um, they won't, otherwise, they won't be able to do it and they'll use up the carbon budget, which will hurt them first, but it'll, it'll hurt everybody. We won't have a proper future. So I, I think, you know, COVID has helped. Um, I, 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 I have said a few times that I was more depressed in January last year than I am now because um, January last year, we were moving towards a COP in, in November of 2020, and I saw no sign of the kind of ambition that would be needed. Now I'm seeing it, and most of all in, in what uh, President Biden said yesterday. But just very finally, Mary Robinson, do you understand the feeling that many people have, you know, as well, that they're weary of the pandemic and they don't want to wake up today and worry about the end of the world? They just want to get in a plane and go on holidays? Well, I do sympathise. Um, <laughs> Nick and myself haven't seen our grandchildren for quite some time. It's tough on everyone. Uh, but actually, uh, we need to link coming out of COVID with um, the steps that the government has been putting in place and promising and has to now urgently implement to make sure that we move forward um, to a green recovery um, that uh, is much more urgent for everybody. And it's, it's not just government at a government level. It's local authorities, it's communities, it's young people, and the young people are terrific. And the young, and the young people are, you know, they're getting impatient with us that we're talking about oh, long-term, you know, um, solutions for zero carbon by 2050. They say, no, we want solutions um, between now and 2030 that are real and measurable and set us on a path to stay below 1.5 degrees. And they're right. Former President Mary Robinson, Chair of the Elders, thank you very much indeed for talking to us on Morning Ireland. EU foreign ministers, including Simon Coveney, will discuss the imprisonment of the jailed Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny today. Russian police have detained more than 3,000 people in a crackdown on protests in support of Navalny, who was detained on his return to the country last weekend after treatment in Germany for a near-fatal poisoning with the nerve agent Novichok. The Kremlin rejects Navalny's claim that President Putin ordered the attack. Sarah Rainsford is the BBC Moscow correspondent and Sarah, uh, protesters came out in numbers defying the, the ban, the fears of COVID and restrictions and freezing temperatures. Is it fair to say now that this is very worrying for the Kremlin and the crackdown was swift? Well, yes, I think that the numbers were significant and the Kremlin will certainly be watching to see how this develops. I think uh, the aim of Alexei Navalny, who actually called for these protests across the country himself uh, from his court hearing um, when he was remanded in custody on arriving back 
in Moscow, he wanted people to come out right across the country. And they did from uh, the far, far east in freezing temperatures, minus 50 in some places, to here in Moscow and up in St. Petersburg, where there were really big crowds, the biggest crowds here in the capital. I was on Pushkin Square on Saturday. Um, there was uh, a huge crowd there packed into the square itself and into the pavements too. A lot of riot police. Uh, at the beginning, they were sweeping in and they were picking people out of the crowd, apparently at random and detaining them. Uh, but a bit later, they they then basically tried to clear the square and there was lots of people uh, detained then. I think the number now is around about three and a half thousand right across the country. So the biggest number of people being detained, which shows, I think, the concern of the authorities here to try to nip this in the bud. They really don't want there to be a wave of massive protests uh, because they fear the streets here in Russia, I think, um, the Kremlin does. Uh, it, it's concerned about the pull and the power that Alexei Navalny has, his influence even behind bars. So I think they're watching very carefully and thinking about how they how they move next. Mm, they are rallying to Navalny at the moment. Uh, and the question is, does he have a plan? Because uh, there was a release of a video during the week as well to continue to stoke, I suppose, the the unease now, the, the growing uh, unease with, with Putin, this this video of a palatial palace, a Putin palace uh, on the Black Sea. Well, yes, this was uh, the bombshell, I suppose, that uh, Alexei Navalny was was holding onto until he needed to deploy it, and he dropped it uh, just as uh, he was arriving back here. So just after he arrived back here, this uh, video investigation, his latest investigation, that's what his uh, team does uh, into corruption and this time he targeted Vladimir Putin for the first time and it was a video uh, which claimed that Mr Putin had had built for him a, a, an enormous uh, palace uh, that uh, was uh, full of all sorts of uh, crazily opulent things including a toilet brush that apparently was worth some $800. Now that was obviously supposed to to anger people uh, because corruption is an issue that really does uh, get people's goat here. It was uh, something that was reflected then on the street where some protesters came uh, waving toilet brushes of their own, so objecting to the implication that there is uh, corruption on a large scale here in Russia that goes right up to the very top. So I think, you know, the Kremlin has said this is nonsense. The Kremlin has said that the investigation is a joke and it's absurd that Putin has no palaces. He doesn't need them. And in fact, I've just been watching the, the big state TV news program from last night. I've just been watching it this morning online. And the whole thrust of that is to, is to still present Alexei Navalny as a nobody and as a corrupt figure himself. Of course, uh, he has been prosecuted in the past for fraud. He's only had suspended sentences in the past uh he's called those those cases themselves politically motivated but now the question is will the kremlin uh, turn the suspended sentences into real prison time for alexei navalny and what might the backlash then be because he is detained now for for, for violations of probation eu foreign ministers meeting today there is a growing international outcry and calls for his release but uh, is there any sign the kremlin might heed that and release him no, I don't think so. This is a, a Kremlin that doesn't give in to pressure of any kind, whether foreign or from the streets. I think uh, the streets in particular. So no, I, I, I don't think he's going to be released. I suspect he is facing a, a real prison sentence, as it's described here. So his suspended sentence being turned into an actual uh, period behind bars. And it could be several years that he, he's facing. I think it's a question of how long rather than whether or not he goes to prison. I mean, okay. up until now, he's only ever been detained by police, but this is prison time that he's facing. And I think that's the Kremlin uh, making a new calculation that they, they need to, to basically remove the threat of Alexei Navalny. Sarah Rainsford, BBC Moscow correspondent. Thank you.
Supplies of the AstraZeneca COVID-19 vaccine to this country will be considerably lower in March than expected. They will be at the lower end of the expected supply for February as well. That's according to the Health Minister Stephen Donnelly. The vaccine has yet to be approved by the European Medicines Agency. Ireland's order is for 3.3 million doses. The European Health Commissioner told reporters last night in Brussels that the EU wants to know exactly which doses have been produced by AstraZeneca and to whom they have been delivered. Stella Kiriakides said the company's explanation so far had not been satisfactory. Meanwhile, supply problems and viral outbreaks means delays for people here who were meant to get the vaccine. Stephen Donnelly said the over-85s are next in line, but no firm start date for that is known at the moment. But with so many essential workers looking to get vaccinated and moved up the queue, how is it decided who gets the jab first? Well, the woman who was part of that decision-making process is on the line now. Dr Siobhan O'Sullivan is Chief Bioethics Officer with the Department of Health and is a member of NEFET. Good morning. Good morning, Audrey. Dr O'Sullivan, is it always those who are most at risk of getting the virus and dying from it who will get the vaccine first? Yes, so part of the strategy, the allocation strategy, um, it's important to say that it's anticipated that obviously we will roll out this programme over time and that everybody for whom the vaccine is indicated will get it. But initially, as you've pointed out, there are limited vaccines available. So it's going to take some time for everybody to receive those vaccines. So there has to be decisions made about how we can allocate um, uh, this very scarce resource in the first instance. Um, And so the way that that was done was that the uh, National Immunisation Advisory Committee, along with ourselves in the Department of Health, so NIAC are our um, expert body who give us recommendations in respect of who are those who are at most risk. So effectively, the starting point here was uh, to look at those who would have, who are most at risk of dying or maybe developing severe disease if they they catch the virus. Um, And so we know that, for example, increasing age is one of the clearest risk factors associated with dying or becoming very ill. So that's why we've prioritised that group. But I suppose in conjunction with looking at all of that kind of epidemiological data, some of the clinical data, it's also important to recognise, and we do recognise that, that many people feel very anxious, have been um, really impacted in very, very significant ways um, and are very eager to have the vaccine. Yes, because I'm just wondering, is it too blunt of an instrument? Because you then, once you have set out the parameters, you get into then the ethical dilemmas because many might ask why a healthy 75-year-old gets it, but a 36-year-old person who's had a, a, a transplant, for example, and his who is immunosuppressed has to wait. Yeah, so so that's exactly it. So in doing this process, um, it's not enough to just look at those kind of, uh, as we say, scientific or medical parameters. So that's why as part of the vaccine allocation, um, we had to look at the, the priority setting process really does have these tangible consequences for people's health, for people's quality of life. And that really requires then that we look at values and principles which underpin those choices. So that's exactly what we did. So we had a number of ethical principles that we actually applied. Um, And that's and one of the most important is fairness. So people want to know uh, that it's fair. So if they want to wait their turn, but they want to recognise that, you know, that there is fairness applied to this process and that what we have tried 
and strived to do in terms of this allocation is to ensure that on the one hand we get the maximum benefit from a very scarce resource so we want to do the most amount of good but we also need to balance that with equitable treatment of people and so in the first instance that has been why it's gone to people who are at most uh, risk of dying or as I said developing severe disease and that we know is from international data and Irish data is those who are older and many of those people who are older will also have comorbidities so they will mm-hmm. have underlying conditions um, and, and I'm just wondering then, then the, say the, it goes down through it goes down through the the age ranges and um, I'm just yes. wondering too was any consideration given because other countries like France for example um, decided to do it the opposite way. They they looked at the situation and decided we're going to vaccinate um, younger people and um, we're going to vaccinate mm. teachers in order to get the workforce back up and running. And they did it the reverse way. Was any consideration given to that here? Yeah, I think that, um, I mean, most countries, in fact, uh, have very similar priority groups. Uh, you'll see that most countries have prioritised um, older persons and frontline healthcare workers, which is what we have done and what's currently being rolled out. Um, I think that the reason, uh, I mean, France has obviously decided to to prioritise younger people, but I think that most countries haven't done that, mainly because at the moment, Audrey, we have no idea um, or very little data available on the effect of these vaccines on transmissibility. So what we do know from the clinical trials is that if you get this vaccine and you later contract the virus, you are much less likely to be very unwell. But what we don't know is whether it will actually uh, stop onward transmission. So if, for example, we had fantastic data that showed that it would stop onward transmission, then that would make sense, for example, maybe to vaccinate younger people who might be out and about more and maybe transmitting the virus more. But we don't have that data at the moment. But I suppose that makes a very important point which is that this is constantly under review this is a new virus we're learning more and more every day I mean it may feel like a decade but in fact it's only been around (laughs) for for a year so um, we're getting we're I think it's really important that all of these things are being kept under review so you know for example we're learning more about underlying conditions that predispose people um, uh, to, to becoming very ill. And so all of that is kept under review by our NIAC um, and we will take all of that uh, and ensure that the list is kept as up to date as possible. OK, I think we've just touched the surface here, but great to talk to you. Thank you very much, Dr. Siobhan O'Sullivan, Chief Bioethics Officer with the Department of Health. Remember going to the movies? Well, one of the most anticipated films not to come out last year was No Time to Die, the 25th film in the James Bond franchise starring Daniel Craig in what was apparently going to be his last, last, last appearance as James Bond with a story that goes something like James is recruited to rescue a kidnapped scientist. He globetrots the world on hot on the trail of a mysterious villain who's armed with a dangerous new technology. Well, you can't go to the movies, but you can listen to this trailer. Why would I betray you? We all have our secrets. We just didn't get to yours yet. The world is arming faster than we can respond. 9. Bond.
Oh, yes. Imagine sitting on a red plush movie seat with the popcorn and your drink in your hand. Helen O'Hara, editor at large with Empire Magazine. Good morning to you. Uh, and uh, when will we see this bond in the movies? Do we know? Well, it's now looking like it'll be October, all being well. And that's a that's a pushback and a pushback and a pushback from last March, which was, was when it was supposed to come out. So, yeah, it's been a while. It's been a delay. Uh, it certainly has. What other blockbusters are being held up? Pretty much all of them at this point, you know, with the exception of Tenet, where like, all of last year's crop were pushed back and, and they're still being pushed back. Many of them, we had announcements in the last week about things like A Quiet Place 2, which has also gone to, I think, September. That was also due to be last March. You know, it's it's been a sort of bonfire of the blockbusters because they just, the economics don't work until, you know, there are enough people can go to the cinema, obviously. So in theory, the first one we see might be Black Widow, which is currently due in May, postponed from last May. Um, but it, it may be that it still isn't safe to go to the cinema at that point, And it may be that it just debuts on, on Disney Plus. So we're going to have to see with that one. Yeah. And obviously, you know, a lot of things have been going to streaming throughout the past. Mm. They have still been made, aren't they? Yes, films are still in production. Production obviously shut down during the worst worst stages of lockdown um, in the US. But, you know, with testing and, you know, quarantining and stuff, production is up and running in parts of the world. Uh, The new Thor movie just started in Australia, which obviously has the pandemic under control. Um, And I think, you know, there's there's some production at least going on or has been in the UK and US as well. Um, obviously easier for independent movies that can, you know, do their own small bubbles as they do on TV shows. But really interesting to see how Australia has managed to, if you like, uh, pick up as as a movie location this past year. Yes, they've. it sort of comes in waves because it depends on who has the the right tax breaks normally. And, and at the moment, it's less about tax breaks and more about, you know, who has COVID under control. So I think Australia is doing well as a result of that. But then Thor was always going to shoot there. So um, it remains to be seen if we're going to see a lot of films following its example and going to Australia and New Zealand. Um, hopefully, you know, people in this part of the world will get the virus under control quick enough. We'll all get our vaccination quick enough that production can start up again here. Uh, of course, this is normally the time of the year, isn't it, when everybody starts getting all worked up about the awards for the year and the big mm-hmm. ceremonies and the red carpet and the frocks. Um, we've seen some attempts, haven't we, in the past couple of months <laughs> to try and do these things online or at home. Yeah. It doesn't really work, does it? it? It's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, you, God bless the stars for putting on couture in order to sit in their living room. I think it was um, Tracy Ellis Ross actually hired a bit of carpet and put it in her back garden so she could walk the red carpet, you know. Um, and, it, and it's lovely and it's cute and everything. But yes, they've postponed the Oscars to April. And so they're hoping that they'll be able to have some kind of ceremony by April. Um, and, you know, in America, with private health care, I'm sure all the stars will be vaccinated by then. So so maybe it'll happen. I don't know. Maybe it will indeed happen. at large with Empire Magazine. Thanks a million for talking to us.
A move by three tech giants in the United States to shut down Parler, a social media platform favoured by Donald Trump's supporters, has renewed debate over freedom of speech online. In the wake of the US Capitol riots earlier this month, Apple and Google removed Parler from their app stores, while Amazon Web Services stopped hosting the company on its servers. All three argued Parler had not done enough to moderate content posted on its platform. But should it have been their decision to make and which platforms could benefit from Parler's troubles. Ingus Cox reports. What's really interesting about the Parler shutdown is that previously we've really seen content moderation, control of what people are saying, focus at the level of the individual user. This is the first time that we've seen this kind of response to a platform. TJ McIntyre is Associate Professor in UCD's Sutherland School of Law and he's also the Chair of Digital Rights Ireland. He believes it's down to the failure of the state that private companies ended up taking action against Parler after the January 6th riot at the US Capitol building, an event that hundreds of Parler users are reported to have attended. In the context of the Capitol riots, one of the problems here is that firms have taken on this power by default. It's not that they wanted to have this power, but rather that the US federal government failed in its obligations. And it's as a result of that state failure that you have seen firms stepping in in this way. While TJ thinks Parler may be entitled to exercise its right to freedom of speech and expression, he says other companies should then be afforded the same right. Under the US Constitution, the First Amendment right for platforms such as Parler to say we're going to host this content and we don't care that you don't like it. But equally, there is a corresponding right on the part of the other intermediaries associated with Parler to say, well, we don't want to be associated with that anymore and we're going to exercise our First Amendment rights. On the one hand, they claim the right to say or to allow their users say whatever they want, but on the other, they believe other businesses should be forced to associate with them. Parler might only have come to prominence around the time of November's presidential election, but the platform has been around for some time. Jenny Darmody is Deputy Editor of Science and Technology news site Silicon Republic. So Parler actually was founded in 2018, so it's sort of been rumbling around for a while. It marketed itself as an alternative to the mainstream social platform, so it would be competing against Twitter and Facebook. But it promoted itself as more of an outlet for free speech, so it would attract the type of people who would feel that they were being censored by things like Facebook and Twitter. Inside, or look at this, these protesters are inside Statuary Hall. Amazon said it had raised questions about how Parler was moderating violent threats prior to the Capitol riots, and with reports that Parler was one of the platforms used to plan the events, seemingly forced the hand of the tech giants. It largely came about from public pressure, as is the case with many of these sort of massive movements. As I said, Parler has been around since 2018, and it makes no secret about the fact that it's sort of promoting this rhetoric of free speech above all else. So it's not a case of the big tech didn't know about them before, but it was sort of a, once it all came to a head, there was public pressure to do something about it because elevating these kinds of opinions and having a platform with this kind of power and rhetoric behind it, they have to stand up and take sort of responsibility for that. They market their platforms as free speech havens, uh, when in reality, what this really means is that these platforms take an extremely passive approach to content moderation. What this results in is that violence and, and threatening discussions are fostered, are allowed, 
and they provide a home for extremist groups. Kieran O'Connor is a disinformation analyst with London-based think tank, the Institute for Strategic Dialogue. He's been monitoring what alternative platforms Parler users have migrated to since its closure. Uh, we've seen a surge in some supporters migrating to lesser known platforms like Gab and, and Telegram. Gab is in many ways like Parler. It models itself as a free speech haven, a place where you can say what you want. Telegram is an app that's used by multiple groups of, of all persuasions. It's used for you know ordinary conversations and things like this. But what, what we've seen is the users are moving there. In a statement on its website, Parler denies its platform was used to coordinate the capital riots, adding the company is working to establish an alternative social media platform. To that end, Parler has reportedly enlisted the help of a Russian web hosting company in a bid to get back online. I think it's quite likely that Parler will come back in some form. We've seen the most extreme of websites or platforms that were taken down find new homes online. One of the main questions around what happens next for Parler, will users return to it? Prior to Parler being taken down, programmers, hackers were able to find a backdoor into Parler and download videos, content, imagery, uh, user data. If users are to return to Parler, maybe they might be worried or maybe they might be anxious about what data has been leaked, has been exposed and how safe their details are. TJ McIntyre says ideally there would be clear rules to deal with a repeat of the parlour situation. Otherwise, private firms are likely to continue to be the ones to act. In an ideal world, there would be a clear legal framework dealing with the question of when internet users and also internet services can be removed from availability online as a result of the illegal speech or the hateful speech of those users. In the absence of that, we have very much a second best alternative of private companies such as Apple and Google being forced to take this role on themselves. That's TJ McIntyre from UCD's Sutherland School of Law ending that report by Ingus Cox. Well, the Grenfell Tower fire in London cost the lives of 72 people, but the longer term fallout from the fire safety issues raised by the tragedy are affecting the lives of up to 4 million people in Britain. Some are living with fire safety risks, other face, others face large bills to fix fire safety problems and there are issues with selling these properties. Our London correspondent Sean Whelan reports. Not only am I living in a fire trap, I can't move out of this fire trap and I, I'm responsible for paying more and more money to live in here. From the outside, Royal Artillery Quays in Woolwich, East London, doesn't look like it would be affected by the cladding problems thrown up by the Grenfell fire. For a start, there is no external cladding. But just over two years ago, a fire safety survey in the 16-storey blocks revealed flammable materials were used in the buildings. And that led to an immediate problem for DJ Maggie Sichter, who was selling the apartment she'd owned for 10 years. And at the very last hurdle, when the sale was just about to be finalised, uh, the, uh, the lender surveyor came over and uh, told me that my flat is now worth zero. So I can't sell it, I can't move out, I'm still uh, paying, I'm paying for the rising costs of keeping the place safe. Buying, not selling, was the problem for Timea Zabo, who works in financial services. Shared ownership schemes set up to help people get on London's very expensive property ladder seemed like a good idea. Now leaseholders who own a share in an apartment, 
30% in Timea's case, are being asked to pay for 100% of the repair bill. I am now devastated because it seems to be that this decision to purchase a flat for security and stability is going to ruin me completely financially. I um, am probably going to have to go bankrupt. I don't have £45,000 to pay the cladding bill, so my only option is to go bankrupt. And I can't tell you the, the, the sleepless nights, the stress, the anxiety this is causing, and it's very difficult to function with your day-to-day -day life when you have this hanging over you and you know, trying to shield your child from it as well. It's, 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 it really has completely taken over and ruined everything. Residents here, like in 500 other apartment schemes in London alone, have had to pay for a waking watch, someone to patrol the complex 24-7, checking for fires and getting the residents out if there is one. For Gemma Baccini, rising costs from her apartment and falling income from the COVID pandemic leaves her facing difficult choices while looking for a way out. Yeah, when we bought this flat, we decided to start a family. And right now, I will have to choose between paying the service charge and the repair bills or send my, daughters, my daughter to the nursery. We are trying to look for a new place, which will definitely be a house, not a flat anymore. <laughs> um, but obviously, I've lost my job due to redundancy for the COVID. And with these bills, and it's just my husband uh, paying for everything, no uh, mortgage provider will give us a new mortgage. So we are kind of in trap. While the British government, builders, developers and landlords argue about the cost of putting things right nationally, thought to be about £16 billion, the bills are landing in the first instance on the ordinary people who've put their money into bricks and mortar. And it is they, like pensioner Adeline Sang, who retired to this complex, who are suffering most. Mentally, physically, emotionally, I'm in a terrible state. And I cry all the time. I have nightmares. I can't sleep well. I don't know what to do, where to turn. Nobody seems to be helping. And the fear of, a uh, constant fear of, you know, either you know, the, the place going to go up in flames like Grenfell or being homeless through bankruptcy. So I don't know what I'm going to do. I really don't. Pensioner Adeline Sang from London ending that report by Sean Whelan. The Environmental Protection Agency and the Sustainable Energy Authority put the fall in our greenhouse gas emissions last year at 6%. The biggest cut in Ireland's emissions of these damaging gases which are warming the climate since the financial crisis in 2011. But how lasting will this trend be? Kian McCormick reports. Hey, come on, doctors, come on. I'm on my early morning run with my dog, Dot. Quick, 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 quick. Well done, well done. The last time I made a recording like this on my iPhone was last April. And back then, this is what it sounded like. And this is what it sounds like now. As you've just heard, birdsong is as clear today as it was in April 2020. 
a little more traffic noise, but research shows the past year has been good for the environment. We do see a significant reduction in our greenhouse gas emissions as a result of the COVID-19 pandemic. A new report out today by the Environmental Protection Agency and the Sustainable Energy Authority of Ireland estimates a 6% reduction of greenhouse gas emissions in Ireland in 2020. The Environmental Protection Agency's programme manager, Mary Frances Rochford. The biggest changes happened across our transport sector, where we saw a fall of almost 17%. In our residential sector, we saw an increase of 9% as many people work from home. And in our energy sector, we saw a decrease largely resulting from a reduction in coal and peat use and a move towards renewable energy, but with a smaller part played by the pandemic measures. Not all sectors have been impacted to the same extent, though, have they? No, and we see um, some smaller reductions in the public and commercial services sector, which fell by 1.2%. Overall manufacturing combustion emissions, which declined by 8%, and our industrial process emissions by 10%. Agriculture um, fell by a small amount, just um, 0.4%. This largely as a result of increases in fuel and nitrogen fertiliser used as we continued to grow our crops and to feed our animals. Internationally, other scientists are seen similar impacts. The European Space Agency's Director of Earth Observation Programmes, Josef Ashbacher. If you look uh, now to the data which we collect with our satellites on a, on a daily basis, we had a quite a dip in March, April uh, last year when the crisis was at its peak and the lockdowns were more, more severe than they are today. But soon afterwards, especially in China, mid last year, values have come back to more or less the same level as before, in some areas even above the level of, uh, of before. China, it has more or less come back to the levels uh, pre-COVID. Another international study indicates that global emissions have declined by about 7% last year. The Global Carbon Project, a collaboration by international scientists monitoring carbon levels worldwide, saw carbon emissions decline by 2.4 billion tonnes. In contrast, the fall recorded during the global economic recession in 2009 was half a billion tonnes. Jan-Iver Korsbakken is a senior researcher at the Centre for International Climate Research in Norway. He's also part of the Global Carbon Project. There has been a record decrease in global CO2 emissions in 2020, the biggest drop for a single year uh, on record. Drops of downwards to 10% almost uh, across the board in CO2 emissions. While this sounds positive... Emissions reductions will probably have little impact on climate change. Again, Jan Iver Korsbakken. The actual effect on the climate is probably going to be negligible. If it all goes back to normal, what really matters is the fallout from the pandemic itself, how that affects what we do with the economy, what we do with climate action going forward. The EPA agrees with this. Any economic rebound in Ireland will bring raised emissions unless it's done in a sustainable way. Again, the agency's programme director, Mary Frances Rochford. We are at a pivotal point for our economy and the recovery steps that we now take will shape Ireland for the next decade. What do we need to do then? 
We need a green recovery to rebuild our economy, to generate new jobs and respond to climate change. And as we emerge from this global pandemic, a green stimulus and implementation of the ambitious policies and measures that we've set out for ourselves in Ireland will be needed for us to achieve a climate neutral economy and a climate resilient society by 2050. Mary Frances Rochford, the EPA's programme manager. You've been listening to a selection of stories from this week's Morning Ireland.